Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about The Americans, an FX television series that wrapped its sixth and final season in 2018. At Rotten Tomatoes, the show's average tomato meter is 96%, and the critics' consensus reads, The Americans is a spy thriller of the highest order, with evocative period touches and strong chemistry between its leads. But here on Below the Line, as always, we're not focused on what the critics thought. Although in this case, if you haven't seen the show, it's definitely worth checking out. Either way, I'm looking forward to discussing with my guests. First up, Dan Fisher, property master for the last two seasons of The Americans. Dan, welcome back to Below the Line. Always happy to be here, Skid. Thank you. So Dan, last time you visited with us, we established that you're a New York-based prop master. How did you get involved with The Americans? Uh, I was an assistant uh, to the prop master. I was on set uh, the fourth season. And then when that prop master did not come back for the for season five, I was asked to, to take over that role. And uh, that was one of the best questions I've ever been asked. And of course, I said yes right away. Well, Dan, looking forward to hearing more about it. Next, Katie Irish, the costume designer. Katie, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So Katie, I'm aware you started as a shopper in season one. Tell us about working your way up through the costume department. That's right. I started on the sixth episode of the first season. I was the assistant designer for seasons two and three under Jenny Gehring. And then I became the costume designer in season four and did seasons four, five, and six. Well, Katie, you've got a lot to share with us. Glad you're here. And then finally, we're joined today by David Woods, who was a producer on the show starting second season. David, welcome to Below the Line. Thanks, Skid. Thanks for having me. So David, your INDB credits for the Americans actually says you are a co-producer, an associate producer, and a producer. Since producer is a title that can mean many different things, perhaps we should start with you telling us a little more about your role on the show. Um, yeah, and it's, it's interesting how the titles can vary show to show and for the same exact work. I started on the show, I think what it represents most of all is just a, a growth on the show and earning the trust of, those, of the showrunners and producers over time, but basically, um, the post producer was my primary function the whole time. Over time, I, I took on more and more responsibility, getting a little more involved earlier in the game to try and fix the things that we saw might that, that could be fixed, that might need to be fixed before it came to post. Well, we're going to discuss that in more detail, but let's first step back and set some context. So the Americans was filmed in New York City. Is that correct? Tell me more about where you guys were set up as a production. Gowanus, Brooklyn. Uh, home of the famous Gowanus Canal, which is a, a, a fine, fine uh, uh, body of water that I would not recommend ever dipping your toe into. <laughs> I think we were the only studio located directly next to a Superfund site. Exactly. <laughs> so tell me, was this a actual FX studio or was it set up specifically for the show? I don't actually know. I mean, it's Eastern FX is the name of the studio. And, but I don't know whether it was there before or not, which is very strange to say because I live in the neighborhood and I didn't know that anything shot there until I got the call to come and work on it. It's a good, I don't know when it started, but you know, there's a number of warehouses in Brooklyn that th through the production boom in New York have converted themselves into things that you can shoot things in to vary or lesser degrees, blocking out sound and other things. Um, I will say it was the first time anything for post-production had been set up in that space, which created for some interesting uh, uh, issues regarding power and air and all of that good stuff. But um, 
yeah, it, it certainly wasn't what you picture when you go like to the Warner Brothers lot or the Universal lot. It was, <laughs> I, I used to joke with people, I also to set expectations. I said, it looks like a meth lab from the outside and it doesn't look much nicer on the <laughs> And that was always the right expectation to set for any new team members, just so they, you know, didn't, weren't expecting posh accommodations for this, you know, upper echelon cable series. And <laughs> so they didn't just drive right by thinking that can't possibly be where those It was hard are. to find. I mean, it was, it was right at the end of the road. You would think nothing is there. And so it was uh, your stages, your production offices, and your post-production facilities were all co-located. Yeah, and that was, that was the best thing, uh, and, and something I'd never encountered before, was not only was post-production there, and again, and, and right, right across the hall from me, David and I were, were neighbors, but even the writing room, every, everything was located in one, one vicinity, so that if I had a question of the writers, I could, if I, if I were nearby, if I were at Katie's place, I'd just drop over to the writers and say, hey, you know, I have a question about what this, this Russian passage means, or, you know, I have two pictures of cars, which one do you like better? Or, or then later, I could go across the hall to David and say, you know, how's that something or other coming up? You know, if I were worried about this, this thing that I had, did it play on camera? David would just bring it up for me. That, that's just such a luxury. Also, just not dealing with any kind of time zone differences made life so much easier. Yeah, I think it was a hidden secret to, to our success. I will point out one other thing. I didn't know this until around season four. Maybe you guys learned earlier. It didn't take you three seasons to figure it out. But the writers called their side the United States and our side the Soviet Union because our side was so much dingier and less well-kept and, you know, exposed ceilings and just, you know, anyway. And they had sort of the nice layout, spacious. We were in cramped quarters. Yeah. Well, it also had to do with where the sets were. All of the Russian sets were on our side of the canal, David, and all of the, yeah. the U.S. sets were on their side. But it went beyond the sets. <laughs> <laughs> but the dinginess of, of that area in general, just the exterior dinginess, not just of our, our place, but all of the buildings around us and the warehouses. I mean, we used a lot of those places for exterior sets. You know, if there were ever one of those, somebody has to meet somebody in a dark alley at midnight, all you had to do was step outside, walk down the block, and there you were. It was really great for that atmosphere. And, and a reminder that the, the Americans did not take place in New York City. It was supposed to be the D.C., Virginia area, or sometimes Moscow. You didn't want to see the New York City skyline at all. So it was very handy for that as well. And so some of that other location work then, would you have to go much further out of town on regular basis? Or um, tell me a little bit more about that. We shot the exteriors up in Westchester, and so we did a number of scenes from various episodes of them pulling into the driveway, pulling out of the driveway, meeting someone at the mailbox. I think one time we had like seven episode worth of, you know, of those scenes one day. Um, we also did do a two-day shoot in Red Hook, New York in season five, but that was the first time we'd ever actually gone out of town. But it's amazing what Staten Island can look like. It can look like Nicaragua. It can look like Maryland. It's, it's kind of amazing out there. I was hoping you would shout out Staten Island. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was that where we did most of the Moscow? I, in my memory, we did a lot of Moscow and Staten Island. But maybe I'm, I'm full of crap. Some on the Upper West Side as well um, for the buildings. But we did use Staten Island for um, the uh, naval 
uh, museum there for a lot of Eastern Europe, specifically when Misha was traveling. In fact, it's funny you mention it on Fosse Burden. This on this first episode, they used that location. I was like, oh, I know exactly where we are, and they meant it to be Munich. And I was like, yep, works for there too. <laughs> and what about DC itself? Uh, did you guys come down here to send a unit to shoot background stuff, or I'm trying to remember if there was even much DC in it. I don't recall. We sent Frank Langella for one shot with the, which, the Lincoln Memorial. But I think, Dave, no, David will know better, but I think that was the only time we went to DC. Um, yeah, other than um, Richard Rutkowski, who was the DP early on, seasons one through three, if memory serves right. Um, he actually went down himself and shot some stuff that we ended up using over the course of the show um, for some just sort of B-roll exterior type stuff. But we use a lot of stock shots as well. Yeah, we did miraculously very little for ultimate, you know, for a show that's set there. Didn't you throw in some CGI into skylines here and there, background? Stuff? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely added. We would try to, you know, <laughs> it's funny. Washington, D.C. is a very flat place, first of all. And also there's an ordinance that nothing can be built taller than the Washington Monument. So it became, where do we put the Washington Monument in a lot of cases? Because you just <laughs> don't see a lot of stuff, you know, clear shot above the horizon. Well, I think locations aside, another big challenge of the show is the fact that it's set in the 1980s. Um, and so that affects all of you from props to wardrobe to, to what you're doing in post. Uh, tell me some more about uh, the challenges there. Well, for me, it's not just the 80s because that's become a very popular decade, uh, I think, to dramatize because a lot of people who grew up in the 80s or, or now the 90s are now filmmakers or producers. And so they're, they're drawing on their memories to create new stories. But I, what I see sometimes is a generalized, quote unquote, 80s, where everybody's playing with a Rubik's Cube and, and somebody's dancing to, uh, to Men Without Hats or something. But on our show, and I'm sure Katie can, can say the same, it wasn't just about, okay, let's get as much 80s crap in the background. It was this particular season is 1986 or 1987. So if something existed just one year later, it could be wonderful and great, but you can't use it because that's 88. And, and also the idea too was it wasn't like every single year. And I think all three of us, you know, all of us here remember the eighties from, from our lives. It wasn't like, Oh, the year's 1983. So I'm going to take, I'm going to discard all the stuff I own and now buy 1983 products and clothing. It could be seventies. You know, there are the cars that we would use could be, a 1971 Dodge, uh, or it could be a 1983 Chrysler. It could be whatever, whatever people have at that time, as long as it wasn't one year or, or however many years after that. It's funny because for me, it wasn't even years. I mean, we often had days. This episode takes place on July 16th. This episode takes place September 9th. This, and so it was very specific. I know for TV programming, oftentimes, like having the kids watch TV, it's like, no, it's a Monday night. It needs to be a show that aired on Monday. For me, though, I can specifically think of one episode in season five where Chris Long, who was directing this episode, wanted to use a certain song. And he went back and forth and back and forth with the Jays about it because the song came out the next month in the United States. And how we finally rectified it was we put a Union Jack flag on this girl's backpack because the song had already been released in Europe. So if we established that she was from the UK, it was fine for her to be listening to that song. 
Now, Katie, when you said the Jays, say a little bit more about the showrunners. The showrunners, Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, um, kind of acted as a unit that we called the Jays instead of Joe and Joel. It just got shortened to the Jays. And they were amazing. They were very hands-on and very interested in all of the crazy questions and minutia that you might throw at them. I just remember one of the early production meetings I ever went to, I went to when I, when I took on the role prop master, the Jays were there and, and, and they opened it up by saying, we expect that sometimes or other, sometime or other, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to screw up, but we want you to, we want you to know that as long as you're trying, as long as you're putting in the effort to it, it's, it's okay that, that, that we just, we, what we want are people who are committed to the show and committed to the stories. And, and we know that sometimes we're going to give you crazy last minute requests and, and, and they're going to be hard. So not everything is going to be perfect all the time, but just commit, commit to this show. And that's all we ask. And, and, and I think all of us who are, you know, all of us at that table, were just like, we're, we're buying in, man. We, we're, we're swallowing the Kool-Aid right now. <laughs> I never made a mistake. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> your, job, your job was to take care of the mistakes that I made. <laughs> but, uh, but to jump back to a couple of things, uh, the, yeah, the attention to detail the day, just like Katie said, yeah, it was like September 6th, 1987 at 8 o'clock, what was on TV. And if we couldn't clear anything that was on TV at that time, then it became, let's find a commercial. Like, let's, we have to sell something. We have to make this work somehow. And oftentimes we would hit sort of budgetary restrictions like, oh, we're not going to be able to license the Super Bowl or uh, the World Series. So how do we work around that? And anyway, but it really started with them, the, the attention to detail. They really wanted it. And I, I think they found, hopefully, I think they clearly found in all of us people who really, really wanted to deliver that. And we did, I, th I think, more often than not. You know, I didn't watch the show at all until I got hired uh, in season four. And when I started watching it, and all throughout, I appreciated that it was never like, hey, it's the 80s, aren't they crazy? In fact, it was never used for a cheap joke. Uh, and it wasn't even used for this idea that we're going to forget we're watching 1983. The Jays trusted that their viewers would remember, even if we don't have a whole lot of signifiers in a particular episode, that this is the period we're in. And, and then when they did use something like that, like I remember the, the, the Super Bowl, like, like David mentioned, or there was an entire episode about a television show that had come out called The Day After, and how that affected our characters, which was like, wow, I've never seen a show where people watch a specific television show and it changes what they think and how they react to the rest of the series. Some of the characters on that show were, were greatly affected by that show. And so I just had tremendous respect for, for the approach they took to the period. But they didn't ignore pop culture because, of course, the 80s were all into a, a show we're listening or watching or a, a particular song we're listening to, and we still are. But it's really interesting to me because as a costume designer, I talk about the Americans being a period piece. And oftentimes people don't think of it as a period piece. And I think it's because of what you were saying where, you know, I... I grew up in the 80s. We all remember the 80s. I, I remember when we got far enough into the seasons that I was able to pull out some yearbooks and, from mine and start looking and using those as research. But it's interesting to me because a lot of people didn't actually register the series as a period piece. 
Hmm. I remember Katie once asking you, and I think this is a nod to both the specificity that the Jays wanted about the 80s, but also trying to stay away from tropes. I, I, I remember asking you, I don't think we have many people wear shoulder pads on the show. And you had a great, I don't know if you remember what your answer was to me. I remember what your answer was. <laughs> I, I actually don't. I'll paraphrase. Um, but it was to the effect of, you know, they really didn't, because shoulder pads were such an 80s trope, they didn't want our main characters to really wear shoulder pads. Like an occasional day player, we only see that character for one episode could wear them, but they didn't really want that to become a thing. And I think that was really the right instinct because it could have become, they really tried to stay away from tropes across the board, but that was, you know, one in the wardrobe area. One of the things we did is we, t we never wanted any of our characters to become caricatures. They always needed to be empathetic. They always need, it needed to be about the story, not about what they were wearing. Unless, I mean, there were a couple of specific disguises that were absolutely about what they were wearing. But otherwise, it really was about finding a way in to empathize with these people that on paper are monsters, quite frankly. And so shoulder pads, as you mentioned, are one of those things where everyone thinks of Dynasty and Dallas and, you know, your shoulder pad meets your earring and your hair is enormous. And that wasn't going to work for them. Also, just fact of the matter is Carrie Russell is a very small human being. So she just couldn't take the volume of that shoulder pad without it looking like a caricature. But we did use shoulder pads. We just, we, we had what we called varying levels. So we <laughs> had JV shoulder pads. We had full on dynasty. We, we had a kind of scale nice. of what level of shoulder pad we thought a person could pull off as, that we would put in. You see, this is why I love that you two were on this particular <laughs> episode with me. Because, <laughs> I mean, this was what it was like while we're, while we're dealing, while we were doing the show and we're dealing with all the logistics of how am I going to get this thing on time to this place and this budget? But at the same time, I remember having these conversations with David and with Katie that went into these sort of more philosophical or memory-based things. And the idea of, of, of not only getting an object or getting a costume on time, but just what are our feelings about it? <laughs> and, and what are our philosophies about it? I mean, it got kind of highfalutin at times, and, and I love those, those, those moments. I also think it comes from a place, I, I don't know about you guys, but to me, I really believe, like, I, I believe really strongly that Twitter has changed television. People being able to see and hear things so well at home, and also being able to then turn around and tweet your bosses and actors on the show and say, this isn't right, that isn't right. That has absolutely transformed television, and I think is is for for the better. It holds us to a higher standard, I think. But boy, has it changed things. And and to that effect, I think it it really asks us to think more broadly. At least I think of it as t thinking more broadly. Just everything I'm seeing, everything I'm taking in, and maybe it's just because I'm in post and I'm sort of at the last line of everything. But I, I don't know, like it even started at script level and prep level thinking about how are we going to accomplish this one specific thing in an authentic, accurate way. Well, I think that leads into uh, another challenge I want to discuss about this show where creating this period, as you say, to be truly authentic and not just trafficking in the tropes of the 1980s, it can get quite expensive in a way that perhaps is not uh, readily apparent on screen, uh, to Katie's point that folks don't recognize it as a period piece. Um, how does a show manage to do that so consistently and yet continue to deliver large storylines 
with that additional expense? I guess the prop man will. <laughs> in my particular case, it's always a thing of what do we have already in storage that you could bring back without it necessarily draw, drawing attention to itself. I had already done movies that took place in the past. Uh, I did American Hustle, for example. So I happened to have, personally, in my garage, a bunch of 1970s crap. So you can use 1970s in 1984, not necessarily as a feature prop, but certainly as a background item, something to add to the, the overall feel of it. But we were also blessed, and, and I don't want to make this a love fest, but we were blessed by an, a very understanding production team that not every episode is going to cost X amount of dollars and that not everything that seems like it's, it's, it's too expensive doesn't mean you, you can't spend the money on it. Uh, Tyson Bidner, our UPM, all of our producers were, were very understanding. When I would come to Tyson with my budget and he'd go through a number and he'd say, how come this is this much? I'd say, well, it's because we have to do this or that. We have to get it uh, on a rush. We, we have to custom make something because because it just no longer exists. And, and he would look at the number and, and say, well, let's chop off something from background to pay for that. Or, you know, let's try on the next episode, which is a much simpler script. Let's try to, to bring that budget in. You know, he always had his eyes on the numbers, but he was very reasonable about it. Katie, I can see similar challenges with wardrobe. Uh, I will never forget the look on Tyson and Mary Ray Thewlis's face when I turned in the first budget that included all of the hockey uniforms. Because, in a di I mean, again, it was 1988, so it's a vintage uniform. We can't use anything that's got copyright or licensing involved. We can't use any kind of modern looking skates or any equipment on the outside that looks modern. Now, all of the padding that goes underneath can absolutely be modern to make that shape. We're not going to see it. Or if that was my first question, I was like, do we have any locker room scenes coming up where we see someone putting the pads on and then the jersey or anything like that? But I mean, all told, once you include skates and all of the padding required and then the custom uniforms, they came out to about $1,000 a person. And I was like, look, hockey teams I know are big, but how many people do we really need on the ice? And they're like, okay, this is the number we actually need playing. I was like, great. And they're like, but we need, we need the bench. I was like, are the bench, is anybody from the bench ever going to come out? Is anyone else from the box ever going to come out on the ice? They said, no. I was like, great. We can only do the top half. There, we've cut half, you know, we're cutting off half. So, you know, they're sitting there in their sweats and their tennis shoes, but they have the jersey on and they've got the, you know, the padding on, but they don't have to have a helmet. They don't have to have a stick. They don't have to have the bottoms. They don't have to have the socks, all of this other stuff. And so, as Dan was saying, it was just a conversation with them going through and saying, what do you really need? And I think you and I, if I may interrupt, I think in that particular case, I think you and I, I don't know if we split the cost 50 50. But I think you and I had a conversation, what is a prop and what is costume in this case? And I think, I think because you and I are both uh, generally eager to please nice people, I, I think we came up to something that, that, that we could both put into our budgets and not give anybody heart attacks. Absolutely. I also think, quite frankly, there was only one place we could rent this equipment from. And so instead of doing two separate orders, why not just combine it into one and That's right. you know, guarantee that it was actually going to arrive on time and with the stuff that we needed. But oftentimes, our budgets were more for background than they were for principal characters. 
And again, when you're doing a period piece, you have to have the background outfitted. And, you know, I, we would send an email to background casting who was great. And we would say, this is the look. We sent visuals along with it, a research board saying, here are the ideas. I have what my, my department laughs at because I call it the no, no, never list, which is please do not ever come to set with any of these things. But, you know, people, by the time you're in the fourth or fifth season of a show, they're like, oh, it's the 80s. And so people would come with their Madonna dress on or they'd come with big Bengal bracelets. Or, and we're like, it's not that 80s. A saving grace for us was that it was in fall and winter. So a nice long overcoat hides myriad sins. And if you can do a nice long overcoat in a nondescript color, you can use that overcoat every single episode on someone in the background, as long as they're not featured walking right next to your principal. And so you, it is, becomes a money-saving device. You know, a good trench coat is a good trench coat. And no one is going to say, I saw that trench coat last week. I can't believe I'm seeing it again. <laughs> I think David and I both laughed at that the good trench coat uh, hides a multitude of sins line because I was that immediately made me think of Carrie Russell being pregnant throughout all yeah. season four. Yeah. Is that four? Season four, yes. Yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk more about that. Let's talk about Carrie's pregnancy. Oh man, that was the first season that I was the head designer, and I found out that I had gotten the job about three weeks before we started back in for prep. And I was very, I was nervous because it was the first episodic. I'd been the head of my department, but I also had been with the show for two and a half years. So I felt that I knew the characters. I knew the people who were involved behind the camera. And I was, I was very excited and I thought this is going to be great and everything. And about my first day of work, the first thing you do is you call through your principals and just make sure that they haven't done a Marvel movie where they needed to bulk up and, you know, completely change frame or, you know, the pianist where they need to starve themselves for 40 <laughs> weeks or, you know, just make sure their, their sizes are about the same. And so I called and I left a voicemail and, you know, and Carrie was a little later in getting back to me than usual. I was like, oh, okay. I wonder what, I was like, I'm sure she's out of town. It's right before we're starting and everything. And then, you know, she told me that she was pregnant. And I was like, that's amazing. I bet they're not writing this into the script. Okay. So we, we knew that we were going to need to fit her kind of every single week just to see what was going to work, what wasn't going to work, and how, you know, how we could work with every other department in order to make it work for all of us. And so folks who might not be aware, um, Carrie Russell, pregnant in real life, but not written into the show. And so the course of her pregnancy needs to be hidden on film and invisible to the audience. And that's going to take everybody involved to, to pull that off, starting with Wardrobe Katie, as you were describing. How do you possibly tackle that? Well, I mean, Carrie is also a magical unicorn of a human that she did <laughs> not, <laughs> she is, um, she did not look pregnant from behind at all. And we shot her until she was almost eight months pregnant. And that's just unheard of. But for those who have seen the show, in season four, when she disrobes and climbs into bed with young He's husband, that is not a body double. That is a pregnant Carrie Russell getting in bed, but from behind, she did not look pregnant at all. And she kept joking. She was like, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting naked and I'm climbing into bed with this man who I've just met because we're shooting the scene first in this episode. And, you know, here's my baby bump <laughs> sticking out. So it was a fun challenge. You know, we were getting the footage and you guys did an amazing job in production. 
Katie has told me recently that they raised the island, the shopping block island in the center of the kitchen. Um, I know we had her carry things, bags of groceries, boxes, whatever. Dry cleaning in one scene, I remember. <laughs> Lots of laundry. Laundry, laundry baskets. And I, I remember, hopefully I have this right. I'm sure somebody's gonna let me know if, if I'm wrong. But <laughs> I, remember in the, I remember in the edit, we thought, you know, this is working pretty well. This is, you know, maybe a shot here or there, but, you know, we're into the story. We're into the characters. We're not paying too much attention. Her face is filling out a little bit more than usual. But yes, she is a unicorn for so many reasons, among them what you described, Katie. Uh, I guess it's hard not to think, though, really quickly, that Carrie and Matthew are just the most amazing people in the world, and you would not want to work with two other actors than them in the whole world. But anyway... So I thought we were doing pretty well. And then um, we're on the mixed stage and we're playing back the episode, which is generally the happiest, most wonderful experience for our showrunners. And usually Chris Long was there, our, our um, executive producer who would direct a lot of the episodes and guide directors. And it would be a, a wonderful thing and everybody would love the episode. And they loved the episodes, but I got a note, a strong note from Joel that we really have to take passes through this episode and the next few to make sure we have absolutely hidden uh, Carrie's pregnancy as well as we possibly can. Uh, I think he said it was like a student film, which is very painful for me to hear. <laughs> um, so um, Crystal Whalen and I went through in just every episode, stopping on every shot of Carrie Russell and just, tr you know, because there were no specific notes. It was just take a pass and just get it done. And you don't have a lot of money to do it. Our first sort of thought was, can we reframe a shot? Can we blow it up, resize it, frame out any part of her body that sort of gives away a pregnancy? Can we darken it? Can we color time it in a way? And both of these do it in a very subtle way. So, you know, you, the audience would never know. And even the people who shot it would never know. Just to maintain the integrity of that frame and what was decided on in production and in the edit. And then lastly was visual effects, because we had done a pass where it was like, let's just send all these shots of VFX and see what the cost was. And it was like, oh, well, that's about three times what we can afford. So it was about trying to then cull that down and figure out a way to make it happen. And it definitely gave me a whole new, I, as if I couldn't appreciate the things that both Dan and Katie do, but if I couldn't appreciate it anymore, going in and just sort of looking at the wardrobe as closely as I've ever looked at wardrobe before, I, I don't think you could have known Katie, but there were just so many things where it was just like, hey, if we just darken that button, we, you can't tell that there's a shape to it. It, it was really interesting. I, I, I haven't had to do anything like this since, but it really taught me a lot about uh, fabric choice and the way things can be cut to hide things. It, we could have had to do a lot more, but I felt like you, you helped us out a lot. Well, I'll never forget, there was one director who Carrie came in and she had to go upstairs and sit on the bed and have a conversation with Matthew in their bedroom. And she walks on set and she's wearing the coat because she wore coats from like the moment we found out on, she was always had a coat on in order to both fill, given some volume on the side, but also for those shadows that David was just talking about. So Carrie is sitting down and the director said, he was like, no, 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 she doesn't need the coat. And I was like, oh no, she needs the coat. <laughs> it's like, she has to wear the coat. I'm like, why? I was like, post, post needs that coat on her. I was like, it's like, but I was like, well, you know, maybe we can have it to where we see her come in and whatever she has to say is so important that she's walking up the stairs immediately. And 
still wearing the coat because that was my thing just in watching it and then going back and looking I'm like oh look she has a coat on she's standing in the middle of the kitchen oh look she has her coat on in the bathroom oh look she has her coat <laughs> on in the bedroom it's she wore her coat for everything she had, a, she, she had a fight scene I remember that mm-hmm. and you know it's she's like karate chopping people and stuff and I can't remember how that was done both physically for her and I can't imagine how close to cut around that, but I guess maybe the coat between the coat and the fact that we shot at night, you know, was, was, was how that was done. There is something in the costume design world called opera shading, and it is about using color to help both draw attention upward and towards the face, but also to slim people down where they might need to be. And so we did employ both that kind of, technique as well as just as David was saying patterns things that weren't going to draw the eye to the fact that a line isn't vertical it might go off off grain a little bit but you wouldn't tell necessarily and so you know our last resort was was literally thinning her you know basically taking this making it thinner and then rebuilding what the background behind that was and we we hadn't do we didn't have to do that a lot but it was Something that thankfully um, the molecule, the company we used, and Luke DiTomaso is our main VFX uh, supervisor, producer type person, had done before and has done some since. So we knew we had that to fall back on. We just didn't necessarily have the resources to do that in a ton of places. But I also think, though, that thanks to Dan Fisher and the world's largest salad bowl, which I still <laughs> love that shot. Like the salad bowl is the biggest thing you've ever seen, I think was amazing. But she was also standing next to Pastor Tim's wife, who was meant to be pregnant to the point of popping any minute. And so standing next to that woman, who we did do a fake pregnancy on. So I was costuming someone who was pregnant to not be pregnant and costuming someone who is decidedly not pregnant to be exceedingly pregnant. The the comparison, you know, when you stand next to someone, you don't look quite so pregnant if this person is wearing a tent and looks more pregnant than you do. It's, it's really like the old thing of, of comparing what we do to making any kind of movie or TV show uh, to, to the, doing magic tricks. It's really about, don't pay attention to what I'm doing with my right hand because, look, I've got a dove in the left. That's, that's what we constantly do. It's like, if you just, if, oh, you know, we're filming DC in the middle of Brooklyn. If you just, if you just pan the, the camera over two inches, you'll miss, you'll miss the Empire State Building or whatever in the background. That's a good point, Dan, and, and that was something, so to speak to the question about the period in the 80s thing and how do we do that without the resources that some shows might have if you're on HBO or something and you're trying to reproduce period, you have a lot more resources to do that. Um, in our case, I think we got so much better over, as t- over time and I'm, I, w- I was grateful to get five seasons to do it. I think over time, um, production just knew what to consider. We, we definitely had better plans with respect to cars. <laughs> but, you know, there were times when we had to reshape cars and visual effects, replace cars and visual effects, um, street signs, we pro- a ton of different street signs. But over time, you know, we would go to Scouts and I would talk to Dan or I'd talk to Mike Fucci, our locations guy, or the production designers that we had over the years, uh, Dan Davis. You know, and, and we'd come up with ideas of what could we use that makes sense for the 80s, DC 80s, to block something modern day New York, you know, or can we remove this? Can we remove that? Sometimes we couldn't. It just comes down to visual effects. But we definitely tried to fix the problem before it was shot 
so that we didn't have to pay those costs. And then, and then at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, maybe it is darkening something as opposed to replacing it or what have you, or just finding the least expensive way to replace it, reframe the shot, whatever it is. But there's a whole host of sort of techniques I think we came up with over time to try and handle that with less resources. Well, what was unique about the Americans, at least compared to many shows that I've done, is, is the interest in process. A lot, of, a lot of producers or directors or, or, or creators I've worked with, they don't want to know how the sausage is made. They just want sausage. But it's not always easy to, to just make something that doesn't exist. And so on, on our show, we would have a, a meeting for um, what we call a concept meeting, where it's just sitting down early on in the, in, the, in the prep process, going through the script, identifying what could be problems with all of the departments. And then I would have my own prop meeting. Before, before I had anything, I'd have a meeting just to go through all of the stuff with every director and Chris Long would be present and, and, and sometimes the Jays would be present. And we would just go through again, what, what, do, what am I gonna need to provide to this? Uh, do I have any pictures to show? So we can get a general idea of, of what I'm going for. And then just all throughout, there's communication and communication and pictures back and forth. And this is another benefit of, of doing this stuff in the age of the internet is I could send e photos, emails, and it, or, is this kind of what we're looking for and so forth. And then, yeah, we do the tech scouts and, and we're going around, I'm going to Katie, Katie's going to David, we're all going to Chris Long. Uh, I don't think the Jays did a lot of tech scouts if they did any, Chris, Chris was our go-to for stuff. And just like, is this, what do we need or what are our problems and how do we solve them? And, and there was not a whole lot of territorialism between departments either. It's like if, if, if Katie, you know, had a problem and I could help solve it, I helped solve it or vice versa. I come to her and, and I knew that I could and there wouldn't be attitude thrown in my face about, well, that's your problem, buddy. I've got, uh, you know, 400 background extras tomorrow. Good luck with that. You solve problems before they are problems. And I would never have a problem, by the way, if anybody uh, on production would come to me and say, hey, I noticed there's going to be this thing. We did it this way on this job. All, all answers were good answers from my own prop crew, anybody. If, if it was a good idea, it's a good idea. And I, as the prop master, I'm going to get credit for it anyway. So why don't I just go ahead and use it? <laughs> <laughs> Salad bowl, by the way, was provided by the uh, set tech department. Not the <laughs> set tech department uh, gets the credit for the salad bowl. But you notice I didn't interrupt you when you were praising me for that. <laughs> I was basking in it. Why not? <laughs> it goes to the point, I think in my experience, it's not usual that post-production has such an active role in production or sort of that, that pre-coordination. Do you think that's specifically driven by the challenges of this or was that just a different atmosphere on this show in general? Uh, for me, it's David Woods and, and who he is as a person. And he's, he's, he's grinning like uh, Santa Claus has just entered the room <laughs> as I watch him on the monitor here. But it's the truth. I've never had post-production people be so uh, physically accessible to me or else I just that really gave a crap enough and just were, were human enough to say, hey, you know, got a problem here, you know, can you help solve it? Or I'd come to him, he would, he would point out something to the dailies and say, oh, we got a little continuity problem here. And I'd be like, oh, I'm really sorry, David. You know, what can we do? And he and I would sometimes just hash it out. You know, it's, it's, it's often the joke, by the way, I'm sure you've heard it a million times, Skid. Uh, well, it's been, it's been around forever where you say, well, we'll fix it in post. In this century now, we all say, ah, CGI. As if, 
as if it's just a few toggle switches away from being solved. Nobody thinks about that CGI costs money. And so, you know, we, it's not that we're callous about it, but we really do depend on people like David Woods to save our butts when necessary. I think I was laughing because when I first started in this, in the industry, I was in post-production and all the shows I worked on were always out of town. And I'm like, am I ever going to work on a show that's like shooting in the same place as me? It's so frustrating to deal with shoots in Dallas, Australia, New York. I was in LA at the time. And then when I, I worked on a show called Everybody Hates Chris that shot on the Paramount lot and we were on the Paramount lot. Um, and I got really in, I got a real good education and production from a lot of really great people. I think without me even realizing it, I realized how much production and post working together can really serve a show. And I think from that point on, it's kind of been my MO, maybe, maybe to a fault. Certain shows just really don't want me around. But <laughs> of my around production, but but there are some that do, and and this one was one where it seemed like it was more good than harm, and yeah, so it's it's a funny thing. I remember talking to Joel and talking to Chris Long, and Chris Long used to be a post producer as well, so I think he understood what it meant to kind of have a post production mindset and how you can bring that to production and be helpful. But but production is its own thing, and I don't think a lot of post people understand that and respect it and know what it is. And, and sometimes they're out of place when they go there. Um, so I, I hope never to be someone who seems out of place there. Um, and to the, sorry, I lost my place for a moment. We'll to the fix idea it in post. Of, Don't worry. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. Yes, that's where it was. That's where it was. <laughs> fix it in post. I get the question a lot. Can we do this in visual effects? Can we do that in visual effects? The answer is always yes. Yes, we can do that in visual effects. The only, the only two factors we should be thinking about are how much does it cost and how well can it be done in post? What I've seen over and over again in post-production is the more you can capture realistically and augment that, the better off you are. As a costume department, we mostly for post usually just interact if there is a green screen, blue screen that we have to deal with. That's the most common one. And there, all, there always were. And so it was one of those, well, what shade are we going to do? Because we like blue because we're shooting at night. And I'm like, okay, but that kind of starts to knock out Navy and we have an FBI and they wear a lot of Navy. So David and I had a lot of discussions about well, okay, we're doing blue screen, but so what shade of blue? What can I do? What can't we do? I never want a floating head. I never want anybody to, you know, disappear. And we did have that happen once. When Misha finally arrives in the United States, he gets out of the airplane. And we had, or no, I'm sorry, not in the United States. When he is shipped back to Russia, he gets down from the airplane. And so we had this I don't know, like four story tall green screen that was the airplane. And it was just, you know, the door cut into it so everyone could get down. And so in front of that are baggage carts and background. Well, at the Soviet airport are Soviet officers in the army. And that uniform is olive green. And I, we talked about it. I mean, there were so many different meetings going back and forth. And I was like, just pointing out, we have to have these officers as background. I think we had 10 of them or something, you know, and we can have them stationed wherever you want, but I can't change what this uniform is. This is what the uniform is. Here is what it looks like. Everyone knows. And everyone was like, oh, no, no, it shouldn't be a problem because this is olive. It leans more, you know, leans more brown. We're using actual chroma green. 
cut to we get on set and all of a sudden we have just some little soviet faces with no bodies <laughs> david what are you taking the week off what i, know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think i ever heard that story first the shot came out great the shot it, came out great somehow it looks, it looks tremendous well we found we, we would put them in front of piles of luggage ah. I, think we, I think we got some apple boxes that we then dan fisher everybody like they covered That's artfully funny. with burlap or something and so we piled luggage up and we took some hats off of people so that way we weren't dealing with cut yeah. off skulls but i think everyone with me included was surprised that that olive green disappeared in front of the chroma but Wow. That that was the only time where I was like, oh, God, I'm going to be fired. <laughs> I'm going to be fired right now. But also in speaking to David's kind of inclusion and thinking of the whole project, in season six, there was a character that he needed to add an earring onto. And David had the professional courtesy of texting me and asking me what I wanted this to be. And God bless, he was like, can it be a stud? And I was like, no, <laughs> I know that would be easier for you. And I'm sorry, but in 1988, no. And I sent him <laughs> pictures of Bono and Michael Stipe and all of these men who had, you know, an ear or both pierced and it never was anything small. But the, again, the shot turned out fantastically. But, you know, having the courtesy and the professionalism and just the care to contact the costume designer about adding this in, I was, I was kind of blown away by. Uh, well, that's nice. I mean, I, I, to me, I feel a great responsibility working in post-production. I see what you guys do all the time. It's a lot of what drives me. I mean, obviously I have my own desires to, to make the show what the creative powers that be want it to be. But at the same time, I, I feel like, my work is honoring your work and I know what you guys put into it. And I, that just gives me a little extra, extra fuel. Um, so it really is riding the currents of that. If I may take one more uh, moment to kiss, uh, kiss David Wood. <laughs> uh, we, we did discuss this uh, prior to rolling. I, I want to bring it up again. Uh, David's office was directly across from mine and every single day, it was always generally a contest, an unspoken contest between us to see who would be the last to leave the building. I almost always lost. It was either David or I closing up uh, our particular building, and I could not outlast David Woods, never. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole thing, a roll gate, three lots. <laughs> Who's gonna be the one to, to do the roll gate and, and the parking lot? Most of the time it was David Woods, like maybe four times it's me. Somebody has to close up the meth lab. <laughs> <laughs> David, what were the circumstances, if you recall, where you had to add an earring to a scene? So um, the Jays were very specific about almost everything. So one of the what came into play here was we had two characters who were love interest or potential love interests could be confused for love interest for Paige in season six, and they were both young Caucasian men around the same age. Same hair color. Same hair color, yeah. And um, they just, they were really looking for a way to distinguish them because they really did not want the audience to get confused between the two guys. So we actually did this on two, we went, there, there was a two front plan. One was, we wanted to make one of them a little more blue collar, working class, less educated than the other one who happened to be a congressional intern. So with the more towny guy, let's say, we went and actually re-recorded almost all of his dialogue. 
um, and gave him a little more of like a, a Baltimore East Coast accent, or we did our best. Um, and um, and that's a big shout out to, we have uh, John Bowen, our, our ADR editor is one of the best in terms of just, he has the best years for, for, for that kind of thing and making it match and work with, along with our sound mixer, Ken Han. But, and they actually won, uh, won an MS, MPSE award in season six. The other part of it was adding the ring. And I really, I looked at some pictures before I called you or while I was texting you and I, I, I wasn't sure. Honestly, I mean, it's not my area of expertise, but I know it is yours. And, and um, I think my wanting it to be a stud was only out of trying to conserve VFX resources. It's a starting point. I think the end up being a hoop ring, which honestly read better. I, I was worried that a stud wouldn't play also, that it just wouldn't be visible enough. But I think and it, the VFX guys did a great job. Yeah. Speaking of effects, Katie, you referenced earlier that there was quite a bit of green or blue screen work. Can you speak more to that? It, I, I don't think it's obvious in the show, to the show's credit, that there's a lot of that work episode to episode. I think that it really was just episodic driven. It, a lot of times it was backgrounds for Russia um, when we weren't shooting anywhere that was. Or sometimes there were time constraints where we would have a scene in a phone booth. And quite frankly, it didn't really matter where it was. It just needed to be a scene in a phone booth. But we couldn't do it on this corner of the studio because we shot something there in the previous episode. And it couldn't be across the street because we were already using that location. And due to the time constraint, we had to shoot that scene on this day. And so this is where we're going to be. And so, you know, David and we would figure out what the plate was actually going to look like and we'd say okay great and you know but we would have it was always, almost always a phone booth I feel like we'd have the phone booth and then you know the green screen behind sometimes it was for driving although I feel like we did not do that often I feel like there was only maybe once that we had to do that and I honestly don't remember the circumstances for that because most of the driving we actually painstakingly did you just made me think about the stuff we did in the Russian scenes in general. And one thing that should be mentioned is, you know, shows always have technical advisors for this or that. Our Russian technical advisor was not simply somebody living in the States who was Russian. We had a real Russian technical advisor in that they lived in Russia. And, and so when we would have scripts with dialogue, those scripts would go to that person they would translate it into honest to God Russian and would come back. We had on set Russian technical advisors to make sure that when our actors were speaking the language, that it was accurate. Uh, and in my case, uh, props, I would, I would constantly send these little uh, questions about the food or about some, it, it, it was important that, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, this show takes place in the eighties and they drive cars that are eighties. But it's another thing to realize in Russia in 1983, a lot of the stuff would, would look more like what in America would be 1973. They were just behind us in terms of fashion and, 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 and what was technology at that time. So that, that was always sort of a reference point too. It's like, what was, what was going on in America in the 70s? That's kind of where, where Russia was at. And even my approach to things like if they had uh, spy devices, surveillance devices. Well, they had to be a little more crude and, and less sophisticated, perhaps, than what the U.S. counterparts were at that time. Uh, and again, though, too, it wasn't just my instinct on this. I was consulting with technical advisors who 
for Russia. We had a spy consultant, a person, what's his name? I'm, I'm blanking on his name, Todd. So, I don't remember. I mean, Sergei was our Russian in Russia, but I don't remember. Yeah. But we also had Russian on, on our set people, too. When we had food scenes that took place in Russia, we had a person that made the food, bring it in, and then would advise how it's served and even how it's eaten. What's the proper order of the food? Or you're, you're using a fork. You should be using a spoon for this or that. Funny enough, um, I was actually at Russian Samovar on Friday night, and Jarkoye is on the menu, and I just had to laugh. <laughs> yeah, Jacoye. It's you know, been a while. I can't remember what, what, what that is exactly. I just remember not, not liking it when I <laughs> But I'm very picky with food. <laughs> Dan, maybe it's just as well that you don't remember the full name of your spy consultant. Maybe they don't. Keith <laughs> 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 Melton. Why did I think Todd? Keith yes. Melton runs a spy museum in uh, Washington, D.C. And so oh. sometimes people be like, well, how did you get this or that? I would email Keith Melton and say, do you have ideas about uh, this thing or, or what it would look like? And his reply would be like, oh, well, we have that. I'll just send it to you. Okay? <laughs> I think he must have been out of his mind to do that. These, these yeah. like one of a kind. <laughs> That's fine. Just, just try not to mess it up. You know, I'm familiar with the Spy Museum here in Washington, D.C., because Washington, D.C. is where I'm based. And it is a private entity, but it hadn't occurred to me, uh, but it makes perfect sense about them having a relationship with your show. Yeah, and that's part of the, you know, the, the ethos of we have to be accurate here. Not only are there people all over internet land who consider themselves experts in things 1980s, but there are all of those people that think they're experts in surveillance equipment and period surveillance equipment and the history of U.S.-Soviet relations and so forth. Every, every one of those people are going to contact us to say, well, you're full of crap. And, and, and we might have, I'm sure we made mistakes or we're, we're out of period in some things you know, at the pace you're at, you're going to occasionally mistake, make mistakes. But by God, we tried. We tried super duper hard to always be accurate in every detail. And the, I think the actors too were like, well, if I'm going to use this thing, it's not going to be just one of those simple, oh, I'll, I'm going to, you know, stick this thing to a wall. And that, that lets me listen to all conversations 500 miles away or whatever. I do remember there was, there was a, a scene in one of the earlier scripts in, in season five where Carrie has to get a, a replica key to an office she's trying to get into. And it's this whole, and, and it was simplified in the script of she basically sticks a key in and it's got soot on it. And she uses the soot to, I can't even remember all the details and I'm a prop man for God's sake. Uh, but somehow or other she uses that to create a duplicate key and then the next day she gets in without any problem. And I did research on that and I found, oh, well, it's not quite as simple as that. It takes these other three steps. The Jays actually wrote like additional scenes where she, and, and, and they got in the show where it's like, okay, she doesn't just do this one thing and walk away. No, she has to go to a bathroom and heat up the key with a, with a lighter. And then it's all this stuff to make it. And it was just amazing to me that they, they really cared enough about accuracy and were willing to listen to a, a dopey old prop man suggestion to write it into the, to the script and get filmed you know, devote time in the daily schedule to make sure we got those, those little steps to, to go that far. In going back to what you were saying about uh, getting things right for period Russia, uh, my tailor, Sarah Moore, is married to a Russian man. So I had a very close connection to someone who was going to tell us if the Russian was not accurate and who, you know, grew up there and was there at our time period. Uh, so once we started airing, it was always like, okay, what did Boris think? What is, you know, is this right? Or how are the fashions? And Sarah would always say, you know, 
oh, you know, he thought she looked like his mother. And I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> perfect, done, done. Right, and our, our, our set decorator, by the way, Mila Kalevich, who's Russian in heritage. I, I, she might even, I can't even remember if she was born there. I but, think she was. Yeah, and then became an American citizen. But it was very important for her that we, we don't uh, do any, can I say bullshit on this thing? Yes. We don't have any bullshit. We mark them on. <laughs> and she's a very opinionated woman and, and a delightful opinionated woman. But she definitely voiced her opinion strongly. And it was super important to her that we do not mess up these scenes set in Moscow or in Russia. I, I think it says a lot about the Jays that they, they really invested a lot in finding the right technical advisors. I mean, the, the person who did our translations wasn't just a translator. It was Masha Gessen, a novelist, uh, uh, an expert on all things Russian. It's a testament to them to not just find people who can do it, but find amongst the best people who could do it. And I think we all, I know for me, we hired, um, he started as a PA. He worked his way up to an apprentice editor on the show, Venya Brook, who was born in Russia and helped us at the Post with a lot of Russian things. So I think we all sort of found our way over time to bringing more of that in because there was so much of a, clear purpose with respect to honoring that in the show. I, I did, I confess to one time trying to get away with, with shit and I got caught on it. <laughs> I was under time pressure for something or other and there was some document or another that had to be all in, in Russian. And I actually wrote a lot of, the, anytime there would be some sort of document text, uh, I would consult with the writers, but they let me write a lot of the text myself. And I like to do that, I like to have if, if it's a document, it's going to say what it really would say. So I, I did that in this particular case, but when it came time to translating it into Russian, I went to Google, Google Translate. <laughs> and I got the Google Translation, and I, I submitted that as a prop, and I got called on it, rightly so. And, and they said, look, we'll, we'll move the insert of this to another day. We want to <laughs> send this to Russia and have it done the right way. And I was like, okay. <laughs> it we, all have our, we all have our mea culpa about that, Dan, because my, 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 you only make one Google Translate mistake and then you don't make it again. <laughs> I made a Google Translate mistake in trying to, when we were redoing the main title for season two and we were changing some of the cast names out, the cast names flash in Russian for like a few frames, like six frames or something. And then the English names come on. And we did Annette Mahendra's name. And I think we Google, to be honest, I think we might have Google translated everybody's, but they all, and I think they all were okay, except for hers. And I don't remember what happened, but we, that was one of the tweets. Like somebody tweeted her and she tweeted the, like, it was like, oh man. And it, uh, so. I, wonder, I wonder what the English, if it, it came up to be like Cheeseburger Jones. <laughs> I mean, it's a name too. I thought, you know, but um <laughs> And Annette speaks five languages. So Annette, you know, and Russian yeah. is absolutely one of them. So I'm sure that she was like, okay. <laughs> but one other thing too, it, it's not just accuracy for accuracy's sake. What I'm sure the Jays have found, and it took me a long time to figure it out, is that when you do get this stuff, when you do the deep research and you do discover these things, it just makes everything better because you get new ideas. You, you discover stuff that, that you didn't know existed. And suddenly I could propose a prop like, oh, these shopping bags, I see it in this picture here that somebody's got a shopping bag. Can we do that? It's like, yeah, that's great. And sometimes it, it isn't even just a background thing. It, it gets written to the script that somebody, not just me, somebody finds something in the research and says, hey, isn't this cool? And it's like, yeah, it is cool. Let's put that in. And even it could be even a story point. It could be that 
that momentous a thing that it becomes a part of the story. It isn't just research so that, that we satisfy the Twitter cranks out there. It enhances what we <laughs> Did you guys do any actual filming in Russia? Yes. Katie mentioned the, the scenes we did in season four. Is that right, Katie? Is that remembering that right? With season five. Season five. Thank you. With Costa Ronan, who plays Oleg. Those were kind of pieces of him um, in different moments that we knew were scripted for future episodes of him sort of dealing with the emotions of everything going on at the time. Um, and then in season six, we, oh, I, I will, I'll take that back. We did shoot a couple of, of sort of VFX plates. So when we shot green screen in New York, we would, you know, send shooters to a particular place in Russia and then shoot that for us and comp it in. And then we did a bigger scale, one of those for the last episode. Um, Wasn't there a bit of international intrigue to it? Didn't Chris Long like basically sneak not really sneak his way into, into Moscow, but he wasn't, he wasn't officially there to film at all. He came as a quote unquote tourist. Okay, so Dan, I'm gonna clean this up for you. So <laughs> what you're saying is, I think what you heard was Chris Long on a tourist visa happened to be going to Moscow to research things for the show. Which and, that's right. there. And then, a, and then a crew was filming and he oversaw them. Just happened to be, right. I think that's what you mean. I, I mean that I don't want Chris Long to ever go to jail. So. <laughs> Chris Long in Guantanamo Bay is Who are we anyway? We're just a bunch of people talking on a podcast. <laughs> That's right. So let's talk about the last episode, both the challenges of pulling it together and the fact that it was wrapping the series. I mean, I guess I'll go first because I'll, I'll have the least to say overall about that question. I was not there for the final episode or actually for the final three or four episodes. Um, as I spoke about, I believe, earlier when I was uh, your guest for the 8th grade episode, I had had some heart issues uh, for some time. Uh, in the case of the Americans, I left in December 2017 uh, against my will. Um, I had to go uh, into the hospital where I received heart surgery uh, to have a, a pump uh, implanted to my heart. And uh, I had to stop working for a period of time and eventually uh, I received a heart transplant uh, last year, and I'm back to work now. But I did miss uh, all of that. But, but my crew, my crew, Averis Kuliak and Kat Flan and, and Erica Severson and Matt Lopak, they all stayed on, and we brought in a new prop master, Jessica Panuccio, to take over for me. Uh, so I was extraordinary je extraordinarily jealous. I did follow along. I, I insisted that the call sheets get emailed to me while I'm in the hospital. And I did manage to come in for the very final day of shooting, and that was that was very special for everybody in certain. I feel less bad about sending you dailies now that I know that you were also getting call sheets. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wanted to I wanted to be a part of it in whatever way I could, just 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 vicariously, and 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 just knowing that 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 would always be an important part of my life. My involvement. You were terribly terribly missed. Thank you. Well, I mean. For me, there were the last disguises that we were ever going to see, which the show has kind of been known for. But also, you know, we have the last shots of Carrie and Matthew looking out over Moscow. And what are these characters wearing to, you know, end the series? And it's, it's a big responsibility. I mean, these are people whom we've known for six years. And one of the things that I loved being as part of the show for this long is that I did get to grow with them. 
people have asked me, you know, what's it like coming in in the middle? You didn't establish the show. And that, that's right, I didn't. Um, I had an amazing designer who started the show before me. But the benefit of this show is that we kept moving on in time period. Things changed. There were disguises. And these characters were all so wonderfully written that they grew and changed over time, as real people do. And so figuring out what would serve the story and serve them was very nerve-wracking. I mean, I, I think we went through and had three or four final fittings as far as like, maybe this is it. And, you know, definitely asking everybody to weigh in. Um, you know, uh, just Holly Taylor as Paige, you know, what what do you wear sitting in the safe house? What, you know, what is that outfit? And, you know, I think everybody kind of felt the weight of that situation, but ultimately I was thrilled with how it turned out. Yeah, I remember reading the script for the last episode and, and I think I knew before I read it that I, it would be the kind of experience I wouldn't forget. I remember getting to the end and reading through and reading through, like, how's this going to end? And as I finished the script, I thought, oh my God, the last like four pages of the script are all visual effects. <laughs> this is this is this is fantastic. This is you know you you would hope to have that kind of an opportunity and and responsibility. I knew it wasn't going to be easy, and and I felt the weight of it all. But it was a good weight. And I remember a few weeks later, Chris Long calling me and saying, "The last four pages of the show are visual effects, and I hate dry. I hate." driving visual effects. He was directing the last episode. I hate, it never looks real to me. And I'm like, well, tell me, I can tell you what I think never looks real about them. You tell me what doesn't look real about them. And we sort of agreed on the same things. And we're like, well, then we're not going to do those. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to find a way to fix those things. And we talked to Dan Stoloff about it, talked to visual effects about it. I think this call with, with, with Chris Long happened at 10 PM at night on like a Wednesday night. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I was walking home. Um, and I, I can still remember where I was. And then I called Luke DiTomaso, our the VFX producer that I mentioned earlier. And I'm like, dude, we have to we have to deliver like we've never delivered before on on this. This is it. This is last episode of the Americans. And there's a lot to do. There's putting them in Russia. There's putting them in a car in Russia. It's it's a lot. And even before that, you know, I think they did an amazing job finding the locations for the checkpoints and the, and the countryside and all of that. And there was just a little bit of work to do there, but visual effects wise. But in the end, I think the greatest compliment has been that I haven't heard anybody talk about how it's visual effects. So, so, so I felt like, I, I feel like we, we really nailed it. And I was supposed to go to Russia for that part of the shoot for the background part. So we shot the Carrie and Matthew part, both in the car and um, at that uh, lookout point over the city of Moscow um, from where Moscow State University is. I was, I was lined up to go to that shoot with, you know, passport and visa. And it was right before like a President's Day weekend, I think if I remember correctly, or a holiday weekend of some type. And 13 Soviet diplomats got expelled from the United States and there was fear about security and the studio called and said, oh, you can't go. And, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know what? <laughs> but we had been we had been prepping this for weeks, and I, I, the Russian crew was so good, and we sort of used everybody we had sort of ever used over the course of the season um, of the Americans in Russia on the shoot, and they uh, were kind enough to send me 
to FaceTime me and send me videos of the takes. So I was sort of following along as they shot. I'm like, guys, you got this. You know, what you have is beautiful. And um, it, all, it all came together nicely. One of those checkpoints that did not require any kind of post work was in Staten Island. <laughs> <laughs> I think just a little bit. We had to do a little bit of signage and yeah, but, but yeah, it was great. Another shout out to Staten Island. They should hire us for the Staten Island Film Commission. (laughs) (laughs) The very last day was actually um, on stage. And it was an insert with a van. Carrie and Matthew and a van. Because I've got the the, uh, iPhone photos still. And uh, it was just, I've never been part of that. I've never never been on the final, final episode of a long-running show that wrapped up. You know, I've been on things that, didn't know that it was going to be the last episode because it got canceled, but, but I'd never been part of that thing where everybody hugs and cries because that's it. You're not going to be part of it yet. It's, it's overwhelming. Certainly in my case it was, uh, uh, but for everybody, of course. And, and, and I just have to also always uh, express my, my gratitude as, as a heart patient, the support I had received from production uh, while the show was, was going on. When the show wrapped for good, we had to sell off a lot of props and a lot of stuff that I had not even been part of. A large part of the profits from, from the art department sales and the prop sales went to me. And they didn't have to do that, but they did that. Uh, and I needed the money at the time. I wasn't gonna be working for at least six months. So I, I was very touched by that. And, and that's aside from the fact that I was just very honored to be among those people and to be on the set that day, uh, hugging and crying along with everybody else. That's, that's just something that I'll, I'll never forget for as long as I live. Well, I'm not sure how we're going to say after that. Here's a funny anecdote. That's a great final word. That's fantastic. Well, you know, guys, it's a credit to all of you and, of course, everyone that worked on the show that did come together so well. Uh, listeners who haven't watched the show, it's, it's well worth getting into. I, I'd argue that it's bingeable. After the first season, particularly, the – Seasons are these long story arcs that play out over the course of each season, and it's well worth sitting down and having a watch. And it's been well worth sitting down with you guys as well. Thank you very much for spending time with me today and really enjoyed the talk. Oh, this has been great. Thank you, Skid. I could do this all day long. <laughs> we'll, have you, we'll have you back. Thanks, guys. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a wrap on The Americans. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating us and leaving a comment on iTunes. If you're a fan, you can see behind-the-scenes photos on our Facebook page at Podcast Below the Line. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, where you can follow us at Pod Below the Line. And if you've got feedback, send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. That's B-I-Z. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on T-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Just search for Below the Line. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks. Thank you.